realized I hadn't pressed the on button. That always helps. Um, welcome again. Let me add my welcome to Mark's. Uh, if you are visiting or new, my name's Rod. I'm one of the pastors here. And at this special time of Christmas, it's, it's great to think about these foundational passages in the narrative of Jesus' birth and also what that means for us. And I guess we're going to think a lot about the theme of God's glory um, just being displayed in the birth of Jesus tonight. So let me pray for us, ask that God will uh, help us as we come uh, to this passage now. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you uh, for your amazing goodness and faithfulness to us in the sending of your Son, the Lord Jesus. We pray that you might help us to grasp afresh um, the wonder, the marvel of him coming to earth, that he might lay down his life for us. And so we ask tonight that you might uh, challenge us, you might encourage us, you might help us to see with clarity again uh, all that you've done in the sending of your son. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was back in February of 2010 uh, that my wife, Christine, and I went to see the movie Avatar. You may have seen this. It was a huge blockbuster. In fact, it was the highest grossing movie ever in Australia at the time. And it starred an Australian actor, Sam Worthington. Now, um, at the following day, we knew that we were going to meet Sam because he was going to be at a wedding that I was conducting for a friend of his. We thought, well, we need to get to know something about him before we get to meet him. So we better go and see the movie so that we're aware of this blockbuster that's taken off. And so off we went and saw the movie. Of course, there's a lot of irony in that, isn't it? We went to see a movie where he's playing a fictitious character set in the 22nd century. He's this alien avatar with blue skin. And we're trying to get to know the real flesh and blood Sam through watching him act in such a movie. And of course, the double irony was that in the movie, he's trying to understand the Navi population as a person from Earth. And he becomes this hybrid person, part human, part Navi, so that he might infiltrate uh, their uh, society and understand them, and in the end, um, seek to protect them. Of course, as you go looking to know somebody, you really need to meet them in the flesh. And so as we did meet him the next day, we discovered that unlike his alien avatar um, person, personage in the, in the movie, he was very um, different. Um, he wasn't distant and seemingly unknowable. He was very down-to-earth, pardon the pun. Uh, he didn't have blue skin, of course, and he was very um, casual with all the people there at the wedding. When you want to know somebody, though, you really need them to reveal yourself to you. Uh, as much as we got to meet him a little bit, uh, we were dependent on him sharing something of himself to have any idea who this guy that had suddenly become famous was. You see, in the arrival of Jesus into this world, his taking on of our flesh, his living amongst us on planet Earth, it leads to a far greater revelation. I mean, in the Luke passage, you might have noticed, but also in John 1, it's said to display God's glory. And God's glory is speaking about his majesty, his powerful presence. It's often signified in the Bible by blinding light that is just impossible to take in God's glory. We're sort of stunned and knocked to the ground by it as we see humans interact with God in that way. And of course, it represents his character too, who he is. And so I guess the question is, why as this baby that's born in a manger that first Christmas, 
Why does he somehow display God's glory? Is there anything glorious about a newborn baby, about this baby that's different? That's our big question that I want to consider this evening. Why does the birth of Jesus display God's glory? Why is it so important, this moment in time? Why does Jesus display the Father's glory? I've got two answers to that question tonight. And the first answer is this. Because he fully reveals God. Because Jesus fully reveals God. Have a look again at John 1 verse 14. How the Apostle John speaks of Christ's coming in this way. The word, that is Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, John's saying that God the Father, who is unseen by anyone, as the Bible tells us, is suddenly made known through the person of his Son. He sends Jesus takes on our flesh, our blood, walks amongst us, so that Jesus is then the final, the supreme revelation of God. How do we know what God is like, his character, how he will act? Well, in Jesus, we have God walking amongst us, living as somebody like us. And yet he's different. In Christ, you have these two natures combining perfectly. He's still the eternal son of God, and yet he's fully human, 100% God, 100% like us. God chooses to make himself known to us in this way, ultimately in this historical man. And I think uh, we get used to hearing the Christmas story. If you're a Christian here tonight, you may have heard it hundreds of times. And so it doesn't quite hit us with the punch that it might. But this is an extraordinary thing that the eternal Son might leave the full glories of heaven and come and live on earth, take on our frail flesh and walk amongst us. As John writes, he would dwell among us, or literally tabernacle among us. God no longer symbolically present, just in a building like the temple in the Old Testament or before it, the tent or tabernacle, but present in flesh, walking around as one of us. The Creator breaking into his marred creation, living amongst his creatures. I don't know if you read or think about some of these um, behavioral experts for animals, those that go and live amongst um, a group of animals, seek to know them by becoming one with them, as it were. Sean Ellis is an example of this. He's a wolf behavior expert. Uh, he conducts research in a unique and often controversial way. This is a guy who has spent a large portion of the last few years of his life living in a wolf pack, um, howling with them, eating the food. He did it for three years together at one time where he, he never showered. He just lived with them, ate their food so that he could understand them, get their language, understand how they cared for one another so that he might protect them. Now, I think sometimes we, uh, we might think a person like that is crazy, but we also marvel at the extraordinary lengths that they'll go to to become one with those that they want to help, those that they want to save and protect ultimately. But all such efforts, like Sean Ellis or anyone else, really pale into comparison with Jesus. I mean, Jesus leaves, as I said, the glories of heaven and takes on our flesh and comes amongst us. And it's not just that he appeared here on planet Earth, but notice John 1.14. It 
In the second part of the verse, he says, But we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. As I mentioned in the introduction, I mean, God's glory is speaking of his majesty, his might, his powerful presence. It's signifying who he is. He's glorious in his being. And so every action, every word from God is glorious. And that's why as you read John's gospel in particular, time after time, when Jesus speaks in an authoritative way and teaches people like no one else, as he performs some miracle that amazes the crowds, John will say, we are witnessing God's glory. We're capturing a moment of God's glory as he acts and speaks in this way. And ultimately, the ultimate example of God's glory being displayed in Christ's earthly life is when he dies on the cross and then is raised on the third day. God's glory displayed in this one, a new and amazing thing. It's this sense of ongoing revelation from God, making himself known more and more through the prophets in the Old Testament, through his word, the law, but then ultimately through his son, the Lord Jesus. But we can miss it, can't we? Now, lots of people, as they wander around our shopping centres and they see a nativity scene, they see some baby perhaps sitting amongst the straw, don't necessarily compute that this is the eternal, glorious Son come from heaven, born for us with all power and majesty. People often pass by as if it's a small thing. We fail to recognise this royal presence with us. I don't know, maybe you've had an example. You've failed to notice or recognize somebody who was really important, <laughs> maybe even royalty. Um, there's this interesting book that was written in 2015 by Thomas Blakey. It's um, about the British royal family, and it's titled, What a Thing to Say to the Queen. And it's a collection of funny stories and anecdotes of things that have happened. But within it, there's this interesting story where she goes to her own um, horse Royal Windsor Horse Show in 1991. And um, instead of coming with an entourage and rolling up in some rolls or something with a whole lot of attendance, she just drives there herself and gets out and goes to one of the back entrances to the gate into the show and turns up to this guy who's the guard and says, you know, well, I'd, I'd like to come in. And he turns to her and says, look, old dear, you won't get in here unless you've got a sticker. <laughs> to which she says... <laughs> I think you'll find, if you look on the list, that my name is there. Oh, who would you be? Queen Elizabeth? <laughs> Apparently, he just thought she was some random lady that had just lost her way and turned up at this gate asking to get in. Now, I think there are moments like that where presumably that was the only job he really needed to have right, where failure to recognise royalty is inexcusable. How could that happen? Is it the same with Jesus? I mean, when we look at a nativity scene, is it the same? Some people would say, look, it's not like his glory was on full display as he was born as a baby. I mean, isn't he born in this backwater town of Bethlehem? I mean, who cares about what happened in Bethlehem? And he's born to this unknown woman, Mary. And he's in a manger, for goodness sake. Like, that doesn't scream royalty and importance. But was Jesus birth unannounced? Was it hidden away so that no one was aware of what was happening? Well, you tell me, how many births, what about yours, start with a star appearing over you at the moment that you arrive? How about a choir of angels turning up and announcing to shocked shepherds 
Glory to God in the highest. Have a look with me, Luke 2, verses 13 and 14. See, God does go to some length to see that the birth of his son is announced. Luke 2, verse 13. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. I mean, that's not hidden away, is it? Notice again that Luke highlights how God the Father is glorified through the arrival of the Son. These events are heralded. And it's not just the least. You might say, well, a few shepherds on a field, they heard about him. I mean, they were the lowest of the low in that society. It's not like that. Anybody important's heard about this birth. What about the highest in the land? Herod, who was the governor, so-called king of the area, put in place, mind you, by the Romans. Well, two years after Jesus' birth, some magi or wise men turn up from the east and they knock on Herod's door and they say, look, we just want to tell you that a king has been born in your territory, child's been born that will be king. Now, I don't know, sometimes as I read that story, I think, why didn't Herod just dismiss that? You might be saying, look, I don't know what you people do out there in the east, but nothing important is happening with any child, I'm here king. Good day, on your way. But no, he is freaked out by this news, this announcement that God sees happens, that the highest guy in the land hears that this child has been born and he sees it as such a threat that he announces that every child under the age of two in his kingdom must be killed so that he might wipe out this potential rival. Well, there's news that's reached the highest in the land. Of course, he fails in his attempt to kill this promised child. And he grows into a man that speaks with authority like no one ever has, who teaches thousands upon thousands of people who flock out to see him day after day, who performs miracles that just stun those who get to witness it. I mean, he heals the sick, he calms storms, he raises the dead. That's not all hidden away in some corner, is it? Many, many people saw. And then that he went before the Roman Governor Pilate, who controlled the whole region and was crucified, dead and buried, only to be raised to life on the third day. This baby's rather unique. You know, there's a book that came out in 2013, uh, written by a couple of computer engineers, um, uh, Stephen Skiena and a Google engineer, Charles Ward. It was called Who's Bigger? Where Historical Figures Really Rank. And, of course, when these books usually come out, they're written by historians who weigh up the influence of the person, who understand the whole sweep of history over so many millennium. But this is a couple of computer engineers, and their approach was somewhat different. They just um, used English Wikipedia as their primary data source. And they ran the data through some algorithms to arrive at a ranking of all the historical figures. Is there any sense to this? Well, yeah, they argued that there was a lot of science to it. They compared all the English Wikipedia articles against five criteria. They did it this way. Two that drew on the Google page rank and three that drew on the internal internal Wikipedia metrics. So the number of times the page was viewed, the number of edits to the page, size of the page. And through this concept, they measured and came up with a criteria to rank the current fame of a subject. And then they had another algorithm to adjust it because there's often more preference to more recent events so they might get the right um, weighting of people over time. So you want to know what they came up with? Top five entries. Number one, Jesus Christ. Number two, Napoleon. Number three, Muhammad. 
number four. Uh, they got down to William Shakespeare and then Abraham Lincoln at five. But I've got to say to you, Jesus was a long way ahead at number one. Even on this kind of approach to ranking the importance of a person, Christ came out number one. And why shouldn't he? I mean, there's been nothing in the human history of this planet that can compare with Jesus, a man who has close to two billion living followers today, let alone the millions and millions over the last 20 centuries. The birth of Jesus displays God's glory because he fully reveals God. In the coming of Jesus, we have something stupendous, and we're not to miss that as we come to Christmas, as we come back to this familiar story. And it brings me to a second answer. Second answer to our question, why is Jesus' birth so important? Why does it display God's glory? Well, not only because he fully reveals God, but secondly, because he reveals God's rescue plan for us. He reveals a rescue plan that is for humanity. Notice again what is recorded in Luke 2, this time verses 9 to 12. Luke records, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. That's the shepherds. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will be of great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. So verse 9, poor shepherds, awestruck by seeing this angel and then a huge host of angels appearing before them. But as the angel gets into the message, verses 10 to 12 and verse 14 are the key verses in this whole section that explain what is happening, why it's so important that this baby has been born, what it is that he achieves. And notice that the key thing as the angel says, is that this is good news, joyful news indeed for everyone, because the baby born is a saviour. That's the key word. Saviour means rescuer or deliverer. And it was a word that was only ever used of God in the Old Testament. Only God could save. He has the power of life and death. God is the saviour. And here it is being applied to this baby that's born in a manger that's helpless. God the saviour with us. And then he's given titles. He's not simply the Savior, but he's referred to as the Messiah and Lord. Messiah, of course, meaning Christ or anointed one. He was the one who would be the son of David. You only anointed kings or sometimes prophets in the nation of Israel. But there was this great promise from 2 Samuel 7 onwards. There would be one that would come, a son of David, who would rule not just over Israel, but all people. That was the Messiah or the Christ. And here we're told he is the one. This child born is the one. And then the title Lord, again, a title that could only be applied to God, speaking of a ruler ultimately over all things. We might use it occasionally of um, people. We have lords in the British Parliament. But the Lord is only God. And here it is being referred to in regard to this child that was born. And Luke goes on to say two verses later how this saviour could save what is it that he does then well verse 14 glory to god in the highest sing the angels and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests 
And so the good news is that this baby that is born provides an opportunity of peace with God. He saves through offering us peace. That begs a few questions, doesn't it? I mean, what is this peace that he's offering? You know, well, it refers to the fact that not only was Jesus born in a manger some 2,000 years ago, but that he grew up to be a man who then laid down his life for us, that he died upon the cross for us in order to bring us peace. Which still leaves the question, well, how does him dying on the cross bring us peace? I mean, how does all this work? I mean, why am I so out of step? Why am I such an enemy, so alienated from God that I need this child to broker a peace deal for me? Why can't I fix it if there's a problem between me and God? Well, the Bible tells us, doesn't it, over and over and over again that we, in our natural state, are enemies with God because we've rejected Him. We do things our own way. In fact, it's like we take these titles of Messiah and Lord on ourselves. We say, look, I'm in charge of my life. I don't need God or anyone else. I'm the ruler and I'll make the decisions. Thank you very much. And yet the Bible wants to say we're neither of those things. In fact, in doing so, we're rejecting God's rightful authority as the creator over us, that he designed us to be in relationship with him, and yet we're so determined to go our own way that we end up enemies with the very one who designed us to relate to him. And the result is we're rebels. And there's this giant chasm between us and a holy God. And whether you're somebody who is a Christian now, or maybe is not sure where you stand with Jesus, there'll be a point in your life, if not now, in the past, where you really haven't been interested in doing things God's way. You may have been somebody who was really fierce, shaking your fist in God's face, as it were, like some of the new atheists today. Or maybe you're just somebody that just didn't care for God's love. You just ignored it. It was a nothing. But either way, God says that puts us out of step with him. Enemies alienated from him. And broken relationships are harder to fix, aren't they, than we often think. We find it all the time with each other. I don't know if you remember this photo that's going to come up on the screen. It comes from the 11th of December, 2005. It later became known as the Cronulla Riots. And there was a bunch of Anglo youth uh, that went to so-called protest at Cronulla Beach, following apparently some attack on some um, Anglo life, surf lifesavers in the previous week. Um, they went in, supposedly um, to just ex uh, express their frustration with all of that and protest, but of course it turned into a violent altercation where they attacked anyone of the Middle Eastern appearance, including this poor guy. And of course, in the days that followed, there were then retaliation from some gangs of Lebanese youth in the Maroubra area and other suburbs. And there was a lot of hand-wringing that went on in the Australian media that followed because they're thinking, how can there be such deep alienation in our country? Why is there such racist attitudes, such anger, such violence? There was certainly alcohol that fueled it as well, but there was a deep, deep problem. Well, in the days that followed then, there was some efforts to bring some reconciliation. And um, I guess the surfies, the Anglo um, leaders of this 
uh, mess, uh, wrote out a letter, a written apology um, to leaders of the Lebanese community in particular and then met with them and that was accepted as a public apology and there was discussion and some reconciliation on both sides. Look, it's just one example, isn't it, in our own country, but there are just sadly thousands upon thousands of examples of this alienation between people, sometimes within families, sometimes between people that were best friends in the past, sometimes at giant scales between different ethnic groups or indeed nations, and we have a war. But you see, the Bible wants to tell us over and over and over again that our greatest alienation is not with one another, but it's with God. That our problem with God is actually far greater. Indeed, unless we get things right with Him, we'll never fix the things on the horizontal plane. And so, if you like, the Bible is God's letter of reconciliation to you and I. He says, well, you know, there's a way back. We can mend this mess. And that letter of reconciliation centers on his son, the Lord Jesus. It's all about him. We're the ones that have ended the relationship and said, thank you very much. I want nothing to do with you, God. And yet God, in his mercy and love, makes the first move and reaches down to us in the person of his son. And that's why this baby that was born 2,000 years ago can bring us peace, because he bears our sin, our rebellion against God, our alienation. Because he's not just the child born in a manger. He's the man born to be your saviour. And so as we come to Christmas, we've got to keep thinking about Easter. It's like reading the start of a novel and never finishing or seeing the first 10 minutes of the movie and walking out. We don't get the reason for this child arriving and the power and majesty of that moment unless we understand what he came to do. He came on a rescue mission. Well, how do we apply all that to ourselves? How are we to think about all this today? Well, I think we've got to answer those two questions for ourselves. Do we see Jesus truly as he is? The one with all power and authority and majesty... God in flesh coming amongst us. And do we understand, secondly, that he came on a rescue mission, that he came to offer you peace with God, a peace that you desperately need? Perhaps you saw the movie a few years ago, um, Gorillas in the Mist, starred Sigourney Weaver. Uh, maybe you read um, all the information in National Geographic of this lady that she was portraying, Diane Fossey. She was... A unique individual, a Californian zoologist who left all the comforts of home in America and headed to Rwanda in 1963 to live on the side of a rain-shrouded dormant volcano so that she might protect the rare gentle mountain gorillas that were being slaughtered one by one by poachers. She went there on a mission to live amongst them, to protect them, and lasted for 22 years. Um, it took her about 18 years before she was fully integrated into their society and they trusted her and she would cradle their babies, she would mourn with them when things happened, when a gorilla was lost. She became one with them. But it all ended on the 27th of December 1985 when she was stabbed and shot by poachers whose trade she was trying to stop. 
And I think, again, we can marvel at somebody who goes to such extraordinary lengths to live among and protect those that they've come to save. But again, it's a small picture compared to that of Christ. And Christ who leaves the comforts of heaven for the struggles of life on earth, who identifies with us even more, who lives with us, eats with us, weeps with us, and ultimately lays down his life for those who he's come to live amongst and save. And that is the good news, the gospel, that God loves so much that he sends his son to do that for you and for me. And the question is whether we'll trust Christ's payment. Our problem is so often we want to offer our own payment or at least add to his. God wants to say, no, you just need to trust in Jesus and his finished work because there is only one saviour. There is only one door to heaven. There's only one ransom that will work for a guilty soul. And that's Christ. And so we've got to receive that offer of peace by faith. And I guess the issue then for so many people in our society is, well, this faith thing, you know, it's too foreign to me. You know, what are you asking? It's a stab in the dark. It's a leap in the dark. We use these kind of phrases that, um, you know, you're asking me to set aside my mind just to blindly trust in something. No, not at all. I want to say to you this evening that faith, is so integral to your life, even at this moment. It's part of the fabric of every moment of every day. That faith is something that we all know and express every day. It's no foreign idea to us. Let me give you one example that points that out. You know, 400 people die on the road in our state alone every year. 25,000 are injured. So that's, you know, over a person each day that dies, 68 people injured. I bet as you leave tonight, you don't spend two hours sitting in the car park praying that you'll get home safely. You just expect you'll turn on the car, drive and get home as you want to because, well, you just do everything in trusting sincere faith that the car will work, that you'll get safely home, that no one will run a red light and hit you. You may have had your car serviced last week and you've got to go down Mount Oosley or Boy Pass and you trust that the brakes that they adjusted work and that you won't go straight through the barrier at the end. All in sincere, trusting faith, you do it every day. And not just driving the car. So is it any different when it comes to faith in God? I want to say no, it's no different. You do those things based on a calculated risk. You think you know enough about your car and how it's been serviced, about how you might drive as safely as you can. You act on the information you have and you step out and trust. God's asking you to do the same with his son, the Lord Jesus. He says, here is the story of my son's life, the reason that he came to rescue you. Put your trust in in him, in his work for you. Take my word and act on it. We might say, ah, oh, but we've got to have some experience. I've got to have some lightning bolt from heaven. I've got to you know, feel something before I'm going to respond and give my life to Christ. Well, look, God may give you those things, but he may not. The foundational idea of faith in the Bible is none of that. It's simply that we take God at his word. 
Jesus has done this. Will you respond in faith, in trust? His word is worthy of trust. And the result of that step, well, it's life-changing. Life-changing. So let me return to those two questions as we finish. Who do you see as you see a baby pictured in a manger? Somebody helpless and can't do anything for you? Or the king of glory that arrived to save you? Have you responded to that offer of peace? Or is it something you've just set aside, unwilling to trust upon such an amazing offer, such a kind offer? Let me urge you today, if you don't know where you stand with Jesus, this is a perfect time at Christmas to think through this stuff. Maybe you've got a little bit more time. Maybe you're already on holidays. We've got free Bibles out on the welcome table in the foyer. There's lots of tracks some shorter info about what Jesus has done. Let me encourage you to take it and read it. Think through that for yourself. Chat with the person that you've come with tonight if you're not sure. And if you are a believer here tonight, then my question is whether you're truly seeing Jesus as he is. Sometimes we can put Jesus in a box and we make him far smaller than he is. Make ourselves very big in comparison as a result. The truth is that we are weak, frail people that are here for just such a short time. But God went to great lengths to send the eternal Son to bring us back, to reconcile us. And so if you have trusted in Jesus, well, he is the one that has brought you life, that has allowed you to be adopted as sons or daughters into God's family, that gives you a promise of so much more beyond this flawed, marred world, which gives you a reason to sing at Christmas. This is why it's a joyful celebration. Who cares about Christmas? What importance or joy is there if I'm just celebrating the the present I've bought for myself or I'm catching up with a great lunch with my family? All those things are wonderful, but gee, that is not enough to get me excited about Christmas. But if there's one that has come who has laid down his life, that offers me eternal life. Well, that is worth celebrating. That is glorious. And that's what God says. When you see my son and what he has done for you, you have seen my glory. God is glorified through the arrival of his son, through every person that responds in faith to the peace that he offers. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you tonight. That you have a wonderful plan for each of us. That you know each of us better than we know ourselves. And that you went to such great lengths to send Jesus to this earth that he might not only live amongst us, but lay down his life for us as our rescuer. Help us to come to him, the one that can offer us life. For we pray this in Christ's powerful name. Amen.